news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. We're really excited to dive in. Before we do so, Carly... Just a reminder, this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or the conversations we have directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you, Carly. Okay, now let's go to your query letter. Will you please read that for us and then give us the word count? Dear Carly, thank you for all the publishing insights you, Cece, and Bianca share on the podcast and beyond. You provide an amazing roadmap for aspiring authors like me, Based on your interest in book club fiction that gets people talking, I'm seeking representation for A Good Lie, 79,000 words, my debut upmarket novel with elements of suspense. A woman discovers the car accident that killed her family and left her the sole survivor as a child was no accident, and she wasn't the only survivor, told in dual timelines and point of view between the main character as an adult and her mother from decades earlier, it is complementary to Lisa Jewell's twisty themes of complex family relationships and trauma, and Kate Morton's books about secrets and how they intertwine with the present and the past. 35-year-old Aurora has one rule to surviving trauma, bury it. 
believed to have been orphaned at age five in an accident that killed her parents and brothers and raised alone by her grandparents, she is an expert at hiding her anxiety and motherhood struggles through a career that helps grieving kids, her stable marriage, and the Pinterest perfect parties she throws for her daughter at their Florida home. While cleaning out her grandmother's house, Aurora finds a 30-year-old photo and note from a long-lost maternal aunt, Sarah. But this doesn't make sense. Aurora has always been told she has no other family and her dementia-addled grandmother can't explain why she hid Sarah's existence. Now the past comes flooding back, triggering flashbacks and questions that crack Aurora's facade, threatening the life she's built with her husband and daughter. Desperate for answers, Aurora tracks down Sarah and returns to her Oregon birthplace. As Aurora unravels her history, she discovers the shocking truth about what happened to her family and her mother's role in the events that changed everything. I published short stories in White Wall Review and Emerge, and previously read for the Nashville Review, and I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association, Sisters in Crime, and AWP. My fiction has been workshopped at Tin House and the Community of Writers. For over 15 years, I've helped raise millions of dollars for nonprofits as a grant writer. When I'm not writing, I enjoy traveling, relieving stress through kickboxing, and spending time with my family and doodles at our Oregon home. Please find the first five pages of my novel. May I send you the manuscript? Thank you for your time and consideration. Best, Alyssa Hananda. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. How many words was that and what was your take on it? All right, so Alyssa wrote it in for me. Thank you, Alyssa. 422 words. All right, let's get into it. So I want to start with the title. I, I like starting here these days. I really like this title, A Good Lie. I really like a descriptive title where it's not just like a lie. It's like a good lie. It could be a bad lie, a this lie, a that lie. So a good lie, I, I definitely, I definitely like that. I think the hook here is really, really strong. Like very, very, very well done. It's very clear. We seriously understand what's happening here. There are stakes involved. Everything is really, really well done here. I also think the way that this is structured by having the hook so clear, it's okay that we kind of slip into the little bit of the the day-to-day, -day, you know, talking about her motherhood struggles and anxiety and this kind of like picture-perfect life because we know that like the hook here is so clear. So I think that's very, very well done. And so I, I'm trying to look through my notes here. I don't even really have that many notes. I'm just like, this is great. This is great. This is well done. Strong hook, this, that. So I think this is probably one of the better, better query letters I've seen in a long time. So well done, Alyssa, for listening to the podcast, taking all this advice to heart and just showing everybody how it's done. Well done. Thank you, Carly. I feel like we need a sound notification for when this happens. Like, woohoo! trumpets blasting etc all right well now let's see if cc agrees cc cc thinks she missed something because there's no way carly didn't catch the fact that there are no comps did i miss the comps so it's author comps so lisa jewel's twisty themes kate morton's books so i felt like the lisa jewel one makes perfect sense to me kate morton's i'm gonna be honest with you i haven't read a lot of kate morton books so that one just kind of registered to me as like I know that she exists. I know that she's a successful author. So I was kind of leaning personally on, on the Lisa Jewell comp there. I really wanted title comps. I know that it's fair to say like for fans of, but for me, so I've been on a Lisa Jewell binge. I'd never read one of her books and then I started reading one and now it's like I am reading all of them because they're so juicy and twisty and fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to the whole Lisa Jewell vibe, but I, I wanted a book comp. But you know, if it's working, it's working. So, so that's amazing. I would remove the believed to have been orphaned. It almost feels spoilery, you know, like she in her head, she has been orphaned, orphaned at blah, blah, blah. Like you can write it in her interiority and then have a line about how it's all going to, you know, come, I don't know, shattering down or whatever, whatever is going to happen. I also thought that the details were fine because of the hook in the first paragraph. Really want to 
reiterate that the hook in that first paragraph is really fantastic. Like it's probably the best written hook I've ever seen because it made me think this sounds so juicy, like so, so juicy. I do worry, and this is me getting ahead of myself, that are the flashbacks happening prompted solely by the picture she found? Because if so, it feels really plot convenient. Like I do not believe that a person has had no memories her whole life and then she sees a picture and then all of a sudden flashbacks start happening. Maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe that's just what the author wrote in the query letter to compress because she only gets so many words. And if that's the case, that's fine. But it did make me go, hmm, you know, I don't believe that memories come back like that. It would be a plausibility issue for me. So I do agree it's very well written and I was excited. I wondered if if we could get a title comp. Maybe that's possible. Maybe you can call in and have Emily help us with that. Awesome, Cece. Yeah, that opens up again in January, as does our Q&A. So we will have that link on the website in January. Cece, you shouldn't then watch Made on Netflix. Now, it isn't 100% like the memoir that was written. It's a sort of fictionalized account of that memoir. But we have this character who only begins to remember something from her childhood once she gets closed into a dark space, a crawl space. And as that door closes, she suddenly starts to remember something that happened to her from her childhood, which she starts to unpack there. And that felt pretty that felt pretty reasonable. What do you think? You're talking about the memoir made? Yeah, so the memoir made has now been turned into a Netflix series, but they've taken it, yeah. a lot of uh yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah, what did you yeah. think when she's in that crawl space and gets closed in and suddenly that is a trigger for her remembering that she used to hide away from her father? I think a few things. One, that's not the thing that sets her on the journey. That's more character development versus plot. Two, the way it it happened in the TV show, TV, it's way, like my bar for TV is way lower. Like I am fine with TV because it's passive. I'm just sitting there, you know? Books, they demand all of my attention. I can't do anything else while I'm reading. And this is fair. I am referring to digesting with your eyes and not audiobooks. So it would give me like, I I just don't believe it. Whenever I I come across a manuscript, I'm like, I don't believe this. And to be fair, there are published books that do it and they do it well. So maybe it's just something where it doesn't work for me, but it works for other people and that's okay. Yeah, excellent point in that that was more for character development rather than why she goes on the journey. Maybe a very important distinction there. I'm making notes, Cece. Okay, so Carly, will you tell us what was in those opening pages? Absolutely. So we start, so it says at the top, a good light excerpt. I'm assuming it is still the first five pages. So just a reminder to everybody, if you are sending us the first five pages, it should be the first five pages. And if an agent ever requests material, you should always send the first five pages. So I'm just clarifying that. I believe this is the first five pages. So we start with Iris leaning over the kitchen counter, talking about the family tree project with her daughter. So her daughter is talking about how she's working on this family tree project. It's essentially what you imagine it to be, which is like putting pictures together. What does your family look like? Parents, grandparents, cousins, what does the tree look like? Her daughter's a little bit upset because she's not finished the project. Other kids at school are saying like it's ugly or not finished. And so the the daughter's trying to understand a little bit more about her family as the mother is explaining you know a little bit about her past and who raised her and like you know why her dad's side of the tree is a little bit more full and why hers isn't 
We know that the husband is at work, so it's just her and her daughter that morning. Really, they're just trying to get ready for school. So she's trying to hurry her along. We know that our protagonist has to go to her grandmother's house. The realtor sent some texts asking her to go clean out the house so they can list it, which kind of sets up the expectation of what's to come in terms of what she's going to find in the house. Our protagonist is like struggling a little bit with like, I don't know what exactly she calls it, but the kind of like a gentle parenting type of thing of like trying to deal with her daughter's meltdown in a reasonable way, but she's like kind of at odds with this gentle parenting being like, wow, what do we have? There's gentle parenting. And then there's like, how do we get this kid out the door? Which I grapple with every morning. So I understand that dilemma. So there's a lot of that like internal kind of parenting going on and that kind of battle. The daughter doesn't want to go to school. They're battling over that. And then the husband comes home and that's where we end. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that? And do you feel like these pages lived up to the expectations of such an excellent query letter? Well, I think you were leading me in the direction that my critique is probably going to go, which is this felt to me like it didn't live up to the expectations of the query letter for a couple reasons. I really felt like the family tree setup has been done. And so... I don't know if there's another way to do this craft, if this is the way that this needs to be done. You know, we, we've all kind of heard this, right? It's the family tree project. It's alluding to this idea that like there's gaps in the family. I don't know. It just, it wasn't as fresh as I kind of would hope it to be. So I don't know if we can just find another craft or whether we kind of need to reimagine what this could be. I think there's a lot of great lines here, like within this, there's a line that says, by contrast, mine is represented by a few meager leaves, most lacking images no longer here. So, I mean, the writing about it is good. It's just, I just kind of wish, I don't know, this craft could have been a little bit, a little bit different. Another line I liked was, their loss is so far in the past, I can't feel much of anything except a yearning for what could have been you know, this idea that the memories are, are so far away and, and, and what that loss feels like. So I've kind of made notes of like, oh, I like this line. I like this line. But ultimately, when we get to the point where they're battling over getting this kid out the door for school, it really just doubled down on, I've heard this before, you know, not only do I, as I said, I live this every day in my life, but we know that, you know, the kind of starting how we start our day, that type of thing is so incredibly mundane because we all do it. It's relatable, it's accessible, but if we don't offer a fresh take on this, then what is it that is kind of, you know, rising above expectation, making it a page turner, kind of making making it interesting here and, and keeping it elevated. So I don't know. I think there is definitely work to be done. I'm curious about whether we think this is the right opening for this book, right? Because I, the part that I did like was I think she really subtly led into the idea of like, oh, the realtor, you know, needs me to come over to the house, we're selling it. So I liked that there was like that compression timing of that is why she has to go to the house because they're, you know, putting it on the market. So that all made sense logically to me. It was just the mother daughter battle and spending so much time talking about this tree when I'm like, could it be a different craft? And why do we have to spend so much time with the morning battle? And I presume the author is trying to set us up expectation wise for some themes that are going to be emerging through the novel. Unfortunately, it felt a little bit introductory where I would really have liked it to feel more surprising knowing that this query letter has such a great hook and there's just really interesting things to come. So Cece, I'll, I'll ask you what you think. I want to begin my assessment by reading the first paragraph. This is important, I promise. Iris leans over the quartz kitchen counter and scowls at the family tree project that's caused nothing but strife for the past week. Kindergarten is supposed to be about learning the alphabet, counting to 100, and nap time. Instead, the year has been full of tear-inducing homework assignments to be completed with minimal help from parents. 
I'm done with reading. Question to the listeners. Who is Iris? Who are you assuming Iris is? I'm assuming Iris is the protagonist. Iris is not the protagonist. Iris is the child, right? So if you start a paragraph like this with Iris, I'm going to assume this is written in the third person. But then we get to the third paragraph and I have, I grit my teeth. The teacher should know better. So Iris is actually her daughter, right? So when Iris was leaning over, it was a child leaning over. And the thoughts that were running through the protagonist's mind did not refer to the leaning in the counter, right? Because the protagonist can't know what her daughter was thinking. So I would reframe the first three paragraphs of this entirely. It's really confusing. And I know it is because Carly even mentioned. Sorry, Cece, can I just weigh in here? I really think that these are not the first five opening pages. And from that excerpt part, the very fact that the author wrote excerpt makes me think that they've jumped past some stuff and they're jumping ahead, which immediately to me is a red flag because why aren't your first few pages so interesting that you're jumping ahead to something else? I could be wrong, but I think that's where this confusion has arisen, Cece. Okay, well, if that's the case, ignore my note because I, again, I just need clarity, right? Clarity is so important. Like who is who, who is speaking, but that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And if I had known, like if the first line were, I am blah, 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 whatever, like something in the first person, then I would know for sure that Iris is someone else. So, so great. I thought that the frustration that the mom felt, the protagonist felt regarding her daughter felt very well done in terms of like, I felt it too. You know, I could see her counting to 10. I could see her trying all the techniques. And then I could see her losing her patience. And that made her feel very human to me, which I really appreciated because it's really well done in terms of the emotionality. I did think that it was, and again, this is CC sounding so mean. It was boring for the, for the beginning. If this is not the beginning, then ignore me. But I don't want to see a mom-daughter struggle to go to school in the opening pages. But again, we might not be talking about the opening pages, so, so I don't know. A few thoughts on interiority. Her daughter is asking her if she misses her parents. Like, do you miss them? That's her question. Is this the first time Iris has asked this question? Has the protagonist been waiting for the day that her daughter would ask about her grandparents? What about her grandparents on the other side? How does she feel about them? Do they make up for the fact that she doesn't have grandparents? Or do they not have a good relationship? Maybe they do with the daughter, but not with the protagonist. What is her framework with death? She's a child in kindergarten. Does she even know what death means? Does she, did she have a goldfish that died? And is that her framework or someone else? Like I remember, I vividly remember, and I have a scary good memory, but I vividly remember the day I understood what, what death was. My great-grandmother passed. I was really young, and I remember my aunt explaining that to me. So as her mom, she would be thinking about all these things. She would be thinking about her daughter's framework, I feel. I also wanted to know if she believed the things she was telling her daughter. We're getting lots of questions, things like, did I say the right thing? Did my parents make the same impossible to keep promise? I would much rather get her messy emotions. The trick with emotionality when it comes to things like death divorce, big, big life moments, is to always show layers and have one of the layers be almost taboo. So for example, you're talking about a parent's death. Yes, you have the hurt and the missing and the longing and the yearning and the confusion. You also have relief. And the reader's going to be like, why is there also relief? First of all, there's always messy emotions with grief. There's always some element that you don't anticipate, right? 
But also that generates surprise and it creates depth and it goes a long, long way with character development. So again, always be thinking about the depth and the messy emotions and the surprising emotions, which is usually something that is the total opposite of the first few layers of emotions. I'm just going to chime in and say that in my experience and talking to other friends who are parents, toddlers are very obsessed with the concept of death. Whether they can actually wrap their head around it is very different, but they are very interested in the idea of what happens, all the questions that come with it. So it is a very common thing for them to ask. So that part feels realistic, but I'm with you on the whole, like, at what level do they understand it? And that is the piece that's interesting. But that they are obsessed 100%. But when she gets the question, she would be thinking like, so I remember with my goddaughter, for example, when my dad died, my goddaughter was, I think she was five at the time. And she came to the the service. And we afterwards went to my apartment and my dad's car was there because my dad, I, I had brought my dad's car to my apartment because I was helping my mom out with like after he died stuff. And my goddaughter asked about the car and I said, well, you know, it, it, it belonged to him. Like I was explaining and she was like, but what about when he comes back? Won't he need it? Because I said we were selling the car. And she asked, what about when he comes back? Won't he need it? Like there's always some type of, again, what what she understands. Well, who knows, right? It's a child's mind. But there's always some type of question. And as the mom, she would be thinking about the framework. Is this the first time she's asked about death, for example? Because maybe it is. Or maybe it's like the 10th time. I really wanted something that was more specific to their situation. It felt like a setup to like, this is our family, you know? Like it felt like the author was trying to find a clever way to convey information as opposed to really immersing herself in the protagonist's mind. I'm not sure if I'm making sense. Yeah, completely, Cece. Now, for our author here and for our listeners in general, remember, we're not saying that this should all be scrapped and taken out. This could very well become chapter four or chapter five down the line, just layering in all the extra things Carly and Cece has said. So our problem here is we're not sure when you say excerpt where it's excerpted from. And this is why we really want those first five pages so we can be 100% sure in terms of the critique we're giving you. But just keep circling the building. I can promise you in every single book I write, my chapter one ends up probably becoming chapter eight down the line. And that's just kind of how it is. So play around with that. Okay, we're now going to Cece's query, which is actually a resubmission from Nicole. Cece, will you read that for us? Dear Cece, imagine my joy at learning that you would review my submission on Tease Not Ya. I, to channel my novel's protagonist, was over the moon. Several friends and colleagues even reached out to congratulate me. Thank you so much for your time and candid feedback. Also, thank you to Bianca for setting up our beta readers group. Based on your feedback, I have radically edited my book. No longer a frame format structure, the entire story takes place over six months during what is arguably one of the most visceral years in U.S. cultural history. Motherland is a 62,000-word multi-POV novel of Cold War historical fiction set in 1968, Washington, D.C. It will appeal to fans of American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson and Honey Trap by Esther Glenn Gray. Marianne is a young, black, and brilliant NASA astrophysicist who dreams of earning her PhD and exploring deep space. But it is 1968, and no graduate program is interested in admitting a black girl. Adding insults to injury, her talent is being squandered at work. She is also sour on love as every man she's encountered, from her father to dates, is turned off by her intelligence and aspirations. After a frightening date, Marianne swears off men for good. That is, until handsome blue-eyed man saunters over and sweeps her off her feet. 
She has no idea that he is a Soviet spy named Mikhail. Mikhail has his own aspirations to infiltrate and take down the U.S. space program. But as he works his way into Marianne's life, he unexpectedly falls in love. Mikhail also befriends his neighbor Leroy, who he believes is a communism-loving black revolutionary. But Leroy is an undercover FBI special agent assigned to the COINTELPRO domestic spying program. Leroy hates spying on civil rights leaders. He joined the FBI to catch foreign agents operating in the U.S., but is constantly told to stick to the brothers. Leroy's intuition leads him to independently investigate his friendly neighbor. The stakes are raised when Marianne finds out she's pregnant with Mikhail's child, and the USSR decides they want her brilliance for their space program. Pulled in two directions by men who think they know what's best for her, Marianne ultimately takes control and charts her own path. I am a national security and foreign policy wonk who is using my midlife crisis for good, not evil. I speak excellent drunk Russian and have studied and work extensively in Eastern Europe. I am also a featured podcast guest and public speaker on diversity in national security. My writing has appeared in publications such as Fjord's Review, Taproot Magazine, and Scary Mommy. I live in the Washington, D.C. suburbs with two nosy kids, too many houseplants, and not enough furniture. Sincerely, Nicole. Thank you, Cece. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. This is quite the plot we've got going on here. Very interesting. Okay, what's our word count there and what's your take on that? I am going to share the word count, not counting the first paragraph, because that was clearly for us. So it's 362 words, which is excellent, right? Like it's, it's very succinct and I appreciated that. First, the plot is amazing. Like Bianca said, the premise sounds so cool. I very much want to read a book about a brilliant young NASA scientist who is ambitious and at the same time has to navigate the racism of the time. It sounds amazing. Like it sounds completely amazing. This is something that I would pick up, that I would read, that I'd be super excited about based on the concept, right? As I was reading the plot paragraphs, I did wonder about, is there enough plot? My best guess is there is, and you're just not saying what the plot is in terms of the query letter. And by plot, I mean plot that is specific to her in a way that gives her agency. I have a lot on Mikhail and on Leroy, and I get that this is multi-POV, so probably we get their POVs too. But I wanted to know more about her. Like, it feels like almost like she is being used as more of a secondary character than a protagonist. They want her for the space program. Okay, they want her. What does she want? Is she conflicted at all? Does she know they want her? Are they offering her something that her own country can't? Like, what is the situation there? Does she find out that Mikhail isn't who he says she is? Or is she, like, does she only find that out at the end? Does she fall in love with him before she finds out or afterwards? Is the pre- I, I just, I had a lot of questions that had to do with her her story, her agency, her protagonism. And I, you know, I would still, I'm being very honest here, I would still scroll down and read if this were a query letter in my inbox. So technically this is doing its job because I am very, very curious and excited to read. But I, you know, to up your chances, I would try to frame this more in a way that gives Marianne more agency, even if her arc is all about she finds herself. Because a lot of people tell me that when I give them this note, they tell me, but she doesn't, you know, reach her agency until the end. And I'm like, I know, but I still have to feel like she's causing things to happen as opposed to just being the object of other people's desires and other people's fears. So it's tricky. It's a tricky balance. Yes, it's a good point. And I also think sometimes characters can cause things to happen by their inaction, right? Sometimes you should 
do something and you don't. And because you just sit back and you allow yourself to be a sort of scapegoat or just allow yourself to be something people walk all over, other things happen that you're able to say, had I done something at that point, you know, the path of my life would have gone in a different way as well. So in a query letter, you can also include things when a character doesn't have protagonism. Due to their lack of protagonism, X, Y, and Z happens because a lack of protagonism can also keep the dominoes tipping over in the same way that making decisions can. So there, if there's instances where that's happening in your story, include that in the query letter so that we know their lack of protagonism has got far-reaching effects, which helps with their character arc, which helps them get more protagonism down the line. Okay, now, um, all right, Carly, what was your take? All right, these are such such good notes. Yeah, so just I'll piggyback off of that and then I'll add my other notes. So I had some notes that were like, why would she be willing to abandon her country, right? So clearly somebody else is willing to invest in her. Is she not suspicious of that? You know, she's obviously trying to pick both love and ambition. So that's really interesting. But like Cece said, they're just like, everything is kind of buried under. And that's the kind of thing where women readers are going to read this for her. And so she is our protagonist. She has to be our protagonist. There really isn't another way unless, again, we kind of completely reimagine this project. So, okay, coming back up the top. I really like the title Motherland. I do worry that it's been used before. So I would just do a little SEO check, which just means like, you know, go to Amazon and go to Barnes and Noble to see what other titles, you know, might have already used this already. But I do, I do really like it. Okay, now I want to talk about this whole word count and the multi-POV and the math ain't mathin' for me here. So 62,000 words and multi-POV in a historical novel. Again, math ain't mathin' because how many POVs are we going to have, right? So we have Marianne, we have Mikhail. Does Leroy have his own POV? That's potentially three POVs in 62,000 words plus world building, which Cece was kind of getting at this whole, like, how much plot is there in this book? And I'm kind of wondering like, oh, maybe this isn't like a big meaty kind of like sweeping saga type of thing. Maybe this is like a very condensed timeline here. So I'm really interested in like the construction of this novel and whether it can kind of pull off this kind of combination. I'm, I'm just very curious. I, I like to be blown away and I always hope that I am. And I always have, you know, the highest expectations of everybody that they can totally pull this off. So I'm very intrigued. Comps, American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. Awesome, awesome comp. So awesome thumbs up for that. Honey Trap by Astor Glenn Gray. I didn't know this book, so I just did a quick little bit of research on the internet. To me, it looks like it was self-published. And I think this is something interesting that we should probably talk about, which is I don't think that self-published books should be your comp. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you are pitching agents that are going to then try to get your book published for traditional publishing. So by coming to something that's self-published, it's just a huge question mark for me. Because if you're trying to comp to something that's so specific in terms of like this plot is the best plot that I could possibly comp, I think you're just looking at it the wrong way. Because we really need to think about placing comps in the market in which you want to exist. And if you want to be self-published, that's awesome. That's just a whole other path, right? So that's something to think about. I would not be suggesting anybody comping self-published titles if they want to be traditionally published. Of course, you know, 
there's going to be the exceptions to the rule. That's the whole point of this podcast and everybody having opinions and me having opinions. But that was just like, it's not a red flag for me or anything like that. I'm just like, huh, that's just not something that I would recommend that somebody do. You know, that said, I think American Spy is an awesome comp. So I know that you know how to find really great comps. That was just something that I noticed. I think uh, Cece and Bianca covered the rest of my notes. You know, I think this is a really, really interesting concept. And I was just very curious to get to the pages to learn more. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So Marianne is arriving at work. We get info on her big picture situation, the fact that she's the only Black woman there and that she's navigating racism amidst a very turbulent time in history. Her boss asks her to do some work for him. And after asking for that, he slams the door on her, which causes her to fall. And she feels really embarrassed. The boss then comes back and asks for the work and tells her she did an excellent job and then says well we're gonna have to you're gonna have to move on and she thinks she's gonna get fired but really she's going to get to work on a special project and she doesn't know too much about it and then she runs into someone else from work at the bus stop pages end with the line that reads marianne didn't notice the pair of icy blue eyes watching her from across the street awesome cc thank you so all right so now we know that what we're dealing with here is an omniscient third person for our listeners remember if you're doing third person close, you can't mention things that Marianne didn't notice because she didn't notice them. So we know that what we're dealing with here is omniscience. Okay, Cece, what was your take on that? Okay, I want to, I think, first start by saying that I want to love this and I love the concept and I love the premise and I love your author bio. And if you're serious about this book, please take my notes with a grain of salt because like all things, it's very subjective. But I think you need to work on the writing. And by that, I mean the immersive quality of the point of view. Right now, this is reading like creative nonfiction. I highlighted a whole bunch of sentences that our subscribers will be able to see. And I want to be clear, it's reading like very well-written creative nonfiction, but there are just some very big picture elements being conveyed Things like every day marked a new battle in the war against injustice. Historic resentments became front page news and everyone had chosen a side. Things like at 22, she was the youngest, only black and only female analyst on her team. It reads like someone is writing about Marianne. It reads like Marianne was a historical figure and you've done lots of research on her and you, the author, are writing about her and doing the best to set it in scene to really hook the nonfiction reader. That's not what this is, though. This is a novel. And as such, we need to be really, really immersed in her head. I don't think omniscient is the way to go. I don't think that's the right POV choice. First, because it's super challenging and you have to really master other points of view before you're ready to master omniscient. But let's assume that I'm wrong about that. Let's assume that you want to make it omniscient. There's still no reason to not go really go into her head. We are getting a lot of sensation bodily prompts when it comes to her emotions. We are getting things like stomach turned, eyes tearing, quietly sighing, but we're not getting the depth of interiority and emotionality that I would need to, to feel hooked and to feel like she's a real person and to feel that I'm, you know, inhabiting someone else's head. It's why I read books. I read books to inhabit another person's brain. It's what I find so fascinating about storytelling. Yeah, you know, if this were creative nonfiction, I'd be like clapping my hands and being like, amazing, you know, because it's so set in scene and so great, but it's not, it's, it's a novel. So, so I worry 
an example of why I felt like we weren't truly inside of a fully formed character's head. She is getting a promotion, right? And all we get is, you know, she's excited, but we don't get any theories. It's true that in dialogue, she asks if they're going to California, but afterwards she just goes, okay, you know, like I, I'm excited about this. And she would have more specifics. She would wonder who in her team would go with her. And if that person she hates is also coming and maybe it's still worth it. And if that person she likes is coming, you know, I, I just think, I think this first scene needs to be different. I think we need more active emotions, more emotionality, more juiciness. You know, the last line, it might sound like a dun 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 line, but it felt like it was coming out of left field for me because again, she is not a real person to me and she needs to feel like a real person. I don't think that she would be receiving information in such a passive way. She'd have theories. She'd be thinking back to a rumor, things like, oh, is it that project that I overheard those two people talking about? And if so, they said it was dangerous. Or maybe if so, they said that the hours were long. Or I don't know, something else. Specifics, right? Like interiority requires specifics. So for me, I don't think that this is the right POV choice. Maybe you're set on it and, you know, it's your book and I, and I, I fully support you regardless, but it didn't land for me. And it's really sad when something doesn't land, especially when I really want to love something. Thank you, Cece. Okay, let's hear Carly's take on that. All right. I think this kind of falls into the trap of like the telling, not showing, kind of just like classic telling, not showing because of the way that the POV is structured. And I, I do feel like this is kind of like classic historical fiction where there is this tendency to have to world build and, and kind of paint the scene and tell us what's going on in the world and all the cultural references that we get. There is telling that has to happen in historical fiction. Not everything can be kind of intuitive in that sense. So I, I struggled with how to kind of analyze that piece because I agree, I don't think this type of POV is working, but I highlighted a lot of lines that I really liked. Like I really liked the writing a lot. You know, for example, towards the beginning, it says her transparent reflection shimmered in the glass like she was a wraith, shadowy and permeable. At 22, she was the youngest, only black and only female analyst on her team, accustomed to being visibly invisible. That connection between her transparent reflection and being visibly invisible, like that's a really, like really interesting craft piece there. So I can tell this person is working super hard on their craft. And I think they just made the POV choice that they felt like suited the project as a whole, as opposed to like, how do we make sure that this protagonist, Marianne, is the protagonist? Like, I think this was a very like story forward choice, like, like an overarching like storytelling choice, as opposed to emotionally reader connective choice, which focusing on Marianne would be that connective tissue that I think that we're all really trying to to get at. You know, there's so many lines here. She's talking about the men all huddled around kind of working on their work. And she says, an abused chalkboard. I'm like, an abused chalkboard, like makes perfect sense. We all exactly picture what that looked like. So as I said, yeah, I could tell that this person is just working super hard. It's just, I think that you unknowingly or knowingly maybe you know got painted yourself into a bit of a corner here with this pov choice which is gonna kind of come up and up again but this isn't to say that somebody else isn't gonna love it somebody else isn't gonna be like oh this makes a lot of sense again we're only reading five pages so it is very hard for us to kind of give a master analysis based on five pages i really did like the last line you know marianne didn't notice the pair of icy blue eyes watching her from across the street it is ominous and it does land for me, but I worry yeah, that we're going to we're going to have an uphill battle here with this POV choice. Thank you, Carly. Yeah. And for, you know, our listeners in general, 
the hardest part for me of any project as I circle the building is deciding on the voice. It's deciding on the POV. It's deciding on present tense or past tense. If it's going to be third, how close third it's going to be, how removed it's going to be. So, you know, these are things I've gotten halfway through a novel before I've decided that POV is not working and I've had to start from the beginning and change it completely. So these are battles for all of us. Don't get discouraged by this. Just let the project speak to you and try it in all different ways until you find the one that really, really resonates with you and with your beta readers as well. Right. Thank you so much, Carly and Cece, for that. Let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is an award-winning journalist, writing coach, and in-demand speaker. Has written for over 150 publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, HuffPost Personal, Good Housekeeping, and Writer's Digest. She has been editor-in-chief of five national magazines and hosts the Freelance Writing Direct podcast. An adjunct instructor at NYU and frequent panelist for professional writing organizations, she lives in New Jersey. It's my pleasure to welcome Estelle Erasmus. Estelle, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Bianca. It's so great to be on your show. It is such an honor to talk to you. My goodness, I want to break down your experience, Estelle, because that is one hell of a bio, can I just say, and that doesn't even touch on it. So can you take us back through this wealth of experience you have that allowed you to write this incredible book? Now, for our listeners, the book we are talking about today is Writing That Gets Noticed, Find Your Voice, Become a Better Storyteller, get published. And we're going to link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page, and we're going to be breaking it down. But I really want you to hear Estelle's background and what made her write this book. Thanks so much, Bianca. While I've had three decades of experience in publishing on both sides of the publishing wall, as a magazine editor and editor-in-chief, and as a well-published journalist and essayist, and then a writing teacher for NYU, where I received the 2023 Teaching Excellence Award. And I bring my students, I've shepherded them to publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Marie Claire, In Style, Good Housekeeping, you name it, publications that I've been in myself. And I've had several pieces gone viral in the New York Times and the Washington Post. But I started out long ago <laughs> in public relations. That's really where I started. And I realized very quickly that I wanted to be on the other side. I wanted to be on the side of the people that I was servicing, which were the editors. And so I did one of my many pivots in my career, and I pivoted into magazines. And my first job was at Woman's World magazine in the beauty department. I was the associate beauty editor, and I parlayed my beauty experience in PR to working in the beauty department at a magazine. Now, Woman's World had 2 million circulation at the time. I think it's even more today. And it's a weekly, which is newsstand sold primarily. And I had seven deadlines a week, which means I was interviewing experts. I was writing the pieces. I was having my helming my own column, a beauty tips column, where I interviewed photographers and I directed shoots and I booked models. I did every gamut of the beauty area and also segued into health. From there, back in those days, it was very easy to move up 
in publishing. I don't know if it's that way today, but there was a lot of opportunity to move up. And so very quickly, I moved to a senior editor role at a magazine called American Woman Magazine, where again, I had my own columns. I had a woman talk column. I wrote the book reviews. I really did my hands-on. I did my 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell says, to put the time in and learn the craft and learn the business. And then I became the editor-in-chief of a magazine that was the competition to American Woman called Woman's Own. And when I was at American Woman magazine, I started talking a lot about dating and relationships. I was a single woman. I was living in New York. I was living the high-flying lifestyle of magazines in the 90s and early oats. I had tea at the plaza with Ivana, not Ivanka, Ivana Trump, <laughs> and Georgette Mossbacker and all sorts of names. I took my column over from Bobby Brown when I wrote the, the beauty column because she was starting a business. So it was all these exciting ventures that were going on. And I went from Woman's Own to a magazine called Body by Jake, which was Hachette. And I had met David Pecker at a party and I talk about it. It was a press event and I had studied what he had been doing at Hachette. And I went up to him and everyone told me, this is the story of my life. People always tell me, you can't do this. You can't break this barrier. You can teach at a university without MFA. All the things they always taught me. You, can't, you shouldn't get have a kid in your 40s. I mean, all the things that I always broke the barriers. And I always said, no, it's my reality, not yours. So I ended up walking over to him, although everyone told me not to. I introduced myself and I said I was a fan and I talked about him. I talked about what he had been doing with George at the time, with the other magazines. And he said, do you have a card? And I said, yes, I do. And I told him I was the editor-in-chief of Woman's Own. And he said, call my secretary, let's have lunch and let's talk. And so I went with him to Laverna Dam and he offered me, and that was the first of several meetings. And then he offered me a job consulting. For Hachette, which I was glad to take on because it was a much bigger publication than anything that I'd have been with since Woman's World. And then I became the editor-in-chief of Body by Jake, but not before telling him how I thought the magazine, which had had one issue, should be redone. <laughs> so I definitely, I was young, but I was always had my ideas and I wasn't afraid. My dad, who has Alzheimer's now, but and today's his birthday, actually, he always told me to believe in myself and believe in my ideas and not be afraid when talking with patriarchal societies. And I really took that and ran with it. So I became the editorial director for Body by Jake. And when Body by Jake closed, because their business model didn't really fit what needed to happen at the time, I ended up launching publications for publishers. So I launched a magazine called Wit Women in Touch. I launched a magazine called Esthetique, which was a skincare and beauty magazine. I launched the American Breast Cancer Guide. And then 9-11 happened. And publishers started pulling in the money and they weren't willing to go outside and hire someone. So I pivoted yet again, and this time into medical education for seven years. 
I became an editorial director at a big medical education company, which was very nice and lucrative, but not what I was used to. I mean, publishing was exciting and I worked very hard. I worked hard in medical education, but I learned to work with doctors, which is a whole nother. If you take the patriarchy and you times it by 12 and you're dealing with doctors, but I got along with them because I was used to dealing with powerful men from my dad and from the people that I'd worked with. And so I worked in medical education for seven years. And during that time, I met my husband, I got married, and I struggled with infertility. And instead of being a high-flying single woman, staying till nine at night, working in the office, going to dinner, going to a press event, going home and doing it the next day, I was able to leave the office at five, which was very important because my fertility treatment also started at five in the morning. So... My daughter is 14 years old today. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. And she's a teenager, which is why I don't write so much about parenting anymore. I really parlayed my next pivot into writing about parenting. I had a column after my daughter was born. I had a column for Mom's Talk. And I wrote the first essay that I'd ever written that showed my voice. And I read it when I auditioned for a show, a new show at the time called Listen to Your Mother, which is sort of like The Moth, but for mothers, it's spoken word performance. And I was so far removed from having been in publishing by the time I read my, my essay at the audition to Amy Wilson, who was the director, that when they asked my background, I said, I'm a communications professional. Because no one cared that seven years ago, I was a magazine editor-in-chief and I was on all the talk shows. You're only as good as your last clip. I got in with this essay that I had written, which I talk about in my book called And She Danced, which was really about my daughter getting up at a library reading group and in the middle of everyone starting to dance when all the kids were supposed to sit on their mom's laps. And I was worried that the audience would, or the people there would get mad at her, but they just looked at her with admiration. And I felt that too. And I thought, could I ever be like that again, ready and willing to take center stage? And so a big reason why I wrote this book is because I was gone. I was gone from the field and I came back and I came back in a big way because I started writing. Like you said, I've written for over 150 publications. I went viral. People said, how did you do? Can you teach what you've done? Whereas when I was a magazine editor, I had taught at NYU in 2001, 2002. I started teaching at NYU again in 2019. That's why I'm so honored to have received the Teaching Excellence Award for this year. And I wanted to write the book that when I was getting back into the field, I would have loved to have had with all the tips and tricks and strategies and advice and what I call Estelle's Edge, which is my pro tips from my three decades of experience. And I really share all that information with my students, but I wanted to do it on a wider platform, which is why I wrote the book. 
incredible. I mean, I'm just blown away by by your experience, how much you were pivoting. It's just amazing. I, normally at this point of the podcast, I would summon Chandler Bing and scream pivot, pivot. But I'm so sad about Matthew Perry, so I'm not going to do that. But for our listeners, many of you are writing novels. And so you are saying, Bianca, why are you focusing now on a book that is about writing and placing essays, op-eds, featured articles, etc.? Here is the thing. When you're an author these days, there is only so much that your publisher is able to do for you. And they are constantly at you to write op-eds, to write essays that they can place, etc. And I quite honestly would rather write 10 novels than one essay. This is how it's always been for me. I I hate essays. I hate op-eds. But you have got to do it. And for many of you out there, you've heard on the podcast how we've had people on the podcast who got their literary agent through an essay that went viral. So they tried for years to get an agent through the slush piles, weren't able to do it. They wrote one essay, they went viral, and suddenly 10 agents were beating down their doors. So this is why mastering these things, learning how to write them, where to place them, how to pitch them is so vitally important. And this book is a master lesson, like seriously, in terms of how to do all of this. Now, there's tons that Estelle covers in this. We've got how to mine your life, incubate ideas, choose the perfect format, research publications, and how to follow editor etiquette, how to craft a perfect pitch, protect your psyche from rejection. And that's true for all writers, not just people who are trying to get essays published, etc. There's a ton here. But what I want to focus on today in my discussion with Estelle is finding your voice. Because I've heard from many of you, your frustration in terms of when you hear back from agents and they're saying, I just didn't connect with the voice. I like this. I like that. But I just didn't feel the voice. So Estelle found her voice. And Estelle, you also used to be an opera singer. So I really want you to connect that for us as well, please. But let's really focus on chapter three of the book in terms of finding your voice. Thanks, Bianca. And I'm so glad that you pointed out that so many of the tenets that I share in the book could be used for novelists, could be used for people writing a book, because it's really learning craft, even in a short form. But if you could take it, it can extrapolate into long form. So like I mentioned, the first time I really had my voice, not my journalistic voice, but my Estelle voice, who I am, was when I wrote and she danced, and I ended up being in Listen to Your Mother with people like Abby Sher and Alicia Reiner, who was Fig and Orange is the New Black, and Patty Chang Anchor, and it was just such a wonderful experience. So a voice is like a song. Like you said, I studied opera, and it's almost like when you hear the first note of a song that Barbara Streisand sings, or Rihanna, or Kelly Clarkson, you know it's them. It's that undefinable something. A writer who has developed their voice, it's how they are on the page, their idiosyncrasies, the way they turn a phrase, their little catchphrases. For me, I love alliteration, and I use it a lot, and that is a unique thing to me. And I don't like the word unique. (laughs) I tell my, my students not to use it. Same thing with thing. I have a thing against thing. Specificity is so much better, especially when you're writing an essay or a novel or anything. So I would say that 
it's your turn of phrases. It's the words that you use. Maybe say things like, you got this, or you're writing about your husband. He's saying, you got this, and you're using it. And it's maybe how you look at a sunrise. Maybe you're saying it's a kaleidoscope of colors that brighten the day. Or you're saying the muddiness, I'm just making this up, the muddiness and the intensity darken the light as the sun rose. Well, those are very different ways of looking and portraying an event in words. And that shows personality. For me, I'm a very upbeat, inspirational person. I would always go to the first way, you know, a kaleidoscope of colors bursting through. But other people would do it a little bit differently, maybe skeptical, maybe tongue in cheek. I couldn't trust that the sun was going to rise. You see, it's all the way that you look at it and craft it with your words. Right. So one of the first things you say in finding and honing your voice, you have Estelle's edge throughout, which I absolutely love. And there's exercises and there's practical things throughout. But one of things, page 19 is when writing your essay, write it for yourself without focusing on an audience or publication that will allow your words to flow and your voice to emerge. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, I think that a lot of times people get caught up. It's so funny because I have a Substack, EstelleSErasmus.Substack.com. And today or yesterday, I put in something about like stop say, talking about beautiful writing because I feel that that makes people, it tightens them up and makes them worry. Oh, can I write beautiful writing? Well, you know what beautiful writing is? It's telling a story. It's having every sentence move the narrative forward. It's sharing clues to the character in dialogue. That's what beautiful writing is. It's maybe using metaphors sparingly, but effectively but it's not that you should sit down and think you're going to do flowery writing and that's beautiful. So you sit down for your first draft and I'm a big believer you hammer it out. Look, that's how I learned. I learned in the trenches from starting out in magazines that when you had to write something, you just put it down on paper and the editing part comes later. It's like the editing part of the brain is a whole different thing. What you want to do is you want to get it on paper and you want to capture it. And if you can't, and I work with my students all the time at NYU and for Writer's Digest and coaching to tell them that if they can't figure out how to get it on the page, write a sentence at a time, write a fragment at a time. I have a notes app in my phone and people are like, how do you, how are you so prolific? I write down little phrases that strike me. I write down words that I might want to use and make sure that I use them correctly. But I do different things to keep the flow going. And in my book, I talk a lot of ways about the scientific strategies behind breaking writer's block and how you can do that. Everyone knows, oh, when I go and I take a shower, the words flow. Well, there's a scientific reason for that. There's an effect on the brain with water and beta waves. You could do the same thing with exercising. And of course, when you go to sleep, sometimes you wake up and you're writing or you're writing from a dream. So sit down, write everything down and then go away. Leave it alone. I'm a big believer in watching bad reality TV. <laughs> Be 
because they had worse problems than anything I could come up with for myself and just let it flow and then come back and then you'll have your editing part and you can kind of work with it. But in order to be a good editor, you have to know craft. That's why I created my podcast, Freelance Writing Direct where you're a guest and will be out soon. And that's where I want to share these tips and advice from authors and experts, much like you do on your wonderful podcast. So that's another reason. And to get your voice on the page, you could do several things. One is you could pretend you're telling your story to a friend, right? Because when you're telling it to a friend, you're not going, oh, Am I flowery enough? Am I evocative enough? Am I, you're saying, no, this is what happened. And you might be using slang. Okay, you can fix that later. But you're telling the story and you're bringing in your emotion. You're not going to say it like a robot to your friend. And then she threw the flowers at me and then I picked them up and threw them back. You'll say, she threw the flowers at me. That hurt my feelings. Why did she think I was after her man? Write all that down. I love all of that. And there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm going to I'm gonna go a little bit back. One, so you were originally a journalist. And I've seen this with a lot of journalists who pivot to creative writing in that they are struggling to find their voice because when it comes to journalism, you're not allowed to have a voice. It's got to be very objective. It's got to sound very formal and you can't have your voice. And another lot of people who really struggle are people who work in corporates because you see it on the page so much corporate speak it sounds like somebody's writing a work email rather than writing a novel so we've got to firstly unpack all of that we've got to put that to the side and go okay that's fine for when we're being a journalist or when we're doing a work thing but when it comes to the writer's brain and I'm sitting here by myself, those voices aren't allowed. And then two, what you said about beautiful writing, we get a lot of submissions to Books with Hooks on the podcast and a lot of people tick their genre as being literary fiction. And when I read it, it's not literary fiction. But people think if they make it very flowery, lots of similes, lots of metaphors, over the top, jazz hands writing, look, Ma, I'm writing, they think that's literary. And it's not. It's ineffective. Literary fiction can be very sparse. There can be barely any imagery in it at all. It can be super raw, very little happening on the line level, but it can be brutal in that it's a sucker punch to the chest. So that's another thing. People need to stop equating purple prose with literary fiction. Now, finding your rhythm and syntax is another thing you look at in your book. And this makes me laugh because there is not an M dash that I have met that I have not loved and wanted to clutch to my chest because it helps me write longer sentences and avoid too many commas. So anyone who's going to read any of my writing just has to read three paragraphs and be, oh, 12 M dashes. Okay, this is Bianca's work. But for other writers, it's going to be much more succinct. The phrases are much shorter, etc. So can you tell our listeners how to find their rhythm and syntax as they find their voice? Sure. I mean, some people write like maybe Hemingway. 
short and staccato and to the point. And short sentences can be great to use. They can connote urgency, anger, annoyance, or a feeling of being rushed. That's great. I wrote a story about an improper Uber driver. And I said, he said, get in the car. I said, no. He said, don't worry about it. So rather than he said, get in the car, lovely lady, I'm going to give you, you know, that would not give the same feeling. So And sometimes you can combine them. When I wrote a story about parenting and giving birth, I made it long and legato. And I said, again, I use a lot of music, the ideas, the the symmetry of music to writing, which I feel is very, very similar. So to get the sense of how you do that, again, I would go back to how you would talk to a friend. Maybe you're somebody who just talks in a fast-paced way, and that would be okay to show in your writing, but sometimes you want to break it up also, depending on the emotion that you're trying to convey and going with the craft. One of my little tools and tips for people who are first starting to learn to work with words is to watch TV with the captions on. I find it enormously useful, and I tell my students to do that, and I talk about it in the book because it helps you see with TV, you have to get someone's attention really quickly. And so this the writers have to get to the point really quickly. They do that with dialogue. They do that with scene. And if you can actually watch it with the captions on, it will kind of go into your brain. Actually, when I'm working on my novel and when I was watching a similar genre, I started taking notes to just see the pacing of how, because eventually I would, as we all do, I would want my novel, once it's published, to become a movie. So I was looking at some of that magicking that things happen that way. I think that every word counts when you're writing. So everything has to move the sentence forward. I say to my students, when you're writing something, say, so what? Even if it's a fast paced sentence, why are you saying that? So what? I said this sentence, you would answer to yourself, if I'm in the case of the Uber driver, because I wanted to show the urgency of how he was trying to get me in the cab, even though it wasn't the correct cab, and my urgency in fighting back to not want to go in. So that's my so what that I'm answering to myself in terms of the rhythm. So there are so many tactics that you can use. And I'm a big believer when you said before about journalistic writing, that is so true that they don't want you to have a voice. But I would posit that the pieces that kind of made my mark, that made me go viral and that have helped my students is when I put my voice in a journalistic piece. But what I say in the book, and I tell everybody exactly how to do it in the book, is to put it in the beginning of your piece. So if you can start with a bit of dialogue or a story, when I wrote How to Bullyproof Your Child, which went viral in the New York Times, and I ended up being on Good Morning America talking about it, I started with a story from my daughter about her being bullied. And then I segued into the journalistic part, which was interviewing experts and offering advice from the experts. And so that is the reason I believe that my story was tantamount to being able to tell the story. I told the story of my daughter and that A, in the audience that I had, which was parenting, people who are interested in parenting their children, 
that connected me as a writer to them. And I do believe that it helped get me more opportunities, which is what I tell my students to do. And I was not able to do that back in the day, wasn't I magazine editor in chief, just through my editor's letters, but not through the pieces that I wrote. Yeah, because that allows for that personal universal element, right? Because each person's experience is completely different. But when you focus that essay at the beginning with your child being bullied, every parent who's had their child come to them with that immediately connects with that. It doesn't matter that it's you, Estelle, writing it. What they connect with is being a parent who feels so helpless in the face of their child being bullied, and that immediately sucks them in, and then they're prepared to listen to what all the experts say about it. But if you begin with expert A, expert B, blah, 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 drones on about this is the theory behind it, it's so dry, people don't connect with it. So the minute you give them that personal universal element, that's when you really have got people. You speak as well about being vulnerable and not pitiful. And I think that's something interesting I'd like us to discuss as well. Yeah, I think that you have to know when to reveal and what to conceal. And I've talked to so many editors for the series Editor and Call that I do for NYU. It's a free series where editors talk to me and they talk to my NYU classes and and being an editor myself and for all my articles. And so editors say that everybody has a sad story to tell, right? But that is not what makes it compelling to the reader. The reason that a story is compelling is if there is some universal change or transformation in, I'm going to use novel terms, the protagonist, the person telling the story. And so that is what needs to be shown more than every aspect of the bad thing happening and the vulnerability. You need to be vulnerable. You need to be real, but you don't need to share every single detail. And I'll give the example. During the pandemic, I had students who said to me, I want to write a story about how I'm so angry at my kids all the time. And I said, well, that's very interesting. You could maybe do that. And then they said, oh, I I should tell you that I'm going through a divorce at the moment. And I said, yeah, you might want to hold on that. Take notes. But anything that could be used against you And I want to be really clear about that. Anything that could be used against you, you really have to think about it. And maybe you want to use it in a novel and not in an essay. Because when you unleash something on the world, you have to be prepared for the world to unleash back on you. That's what I say. That's what I always tell my students. And don't blow up your life for a byline. With that said, I have written about ectopic pregnancies. I've had students who write about divorce, about losing best friends, about losing lovers. I wrote about an inappropriate therapist I had when I was a child for Salon who led his comments. And I started my essay with this first line, do you think about me when you masturbate? said my 45-year-old therapist to 16-year-old me. So in that case, I did share some very vulnerable things. I had a lot of distance from it, and it was really the onus was on him, right? When I wrote a piece about my daughter who was acting out called My Child is Out of Control for the Washington Post, which went viral, I framed it in such a way that the onus wasn't on her. 
It wasn't my kid did this bad thing, how horrible she is, because, wow, that could bite her in the butt many years later. And I was thinking about that because I was seeing at the time all the bloggers, which I also wouldn't even talk about my foray into blogging after listen to your mother. But bloggers were really just trashing their kids. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put the onus on me. So if she was throwing a tantrum, maybe she had seen me do road rage when someone had cut in front of me in pickup life. And that was how I put that essay together. So yes, I was showing my vulnerability, but it was also connected to story. And it wasn't just poor her, poor me. It was connected to story. And it wasn't something, yeah, sure, there are trolls. They'll be like, you know, Child Protective Services should take her away. Of course. And you have to, like I said, you unleash something on the world. You have to be prepared for it to be unleashed back on you. But I felt good about what I gave out. And I always checked with my husband. He's kind of my bellwether that he will read and and he's a stoic South African. So he will tell me when he really feels something is inappropriate, even if I can't see it. And I think we all need those sounding boards that will help us. And so I've had students who've revealed very vulnerable things, but again, don't talk about robbing a bank, you know, don't talk about taking money from someone. I, I know somebody who was a lovely writer and I don't want to say a name, but she wrote a story about stealing a man who's now her husband from somebody else. And believe me, she had quite a lot of pushback and I haven't seen her write anything since. Yeah, yeah. You know what? As the Stoic South African, there's definitely such a thing as too much information. South Africans get told, don't air your dirty laundry, whether it's on Facebook or whether wherever it may be. But yeah, there's a difference between doing that and being vulnerable because that's what people connect with. People connect with that honesty and that vulnerability. And for those of you who write fiction, it's true for fiction as well. I say that I tell my greatest truths in the stories that I make up. I'm not someone who's ever going to write an essay and tell the world my greatest truth. But if you pay attention to my fiction, you will see my greatest truths and my greatest vulnerabilities within my fiction. So this is something that you can use no matter what sort of format you are writing in. Right, we are past our time. Estelle, what a joy it's been chatting to you. For our listeners, whether you write fiction, no matter what you write, this is a book you have got to add to your shelves. We always say, you know, get Save the Cat Writes a Novel, get Story Genius, get Stephen King, get Anne Lamott. This is one of the books that has to be on your shelf with all of those other books. So writing that gets noticed, we're linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. And as you start getting ready to send your novel out on submission, as you get ready to publish These are techniques that you have to start learning now because I promise you it's going to stand you in very good stead when you do publish. Estelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Bianca. It's been such a pleasure. You're such a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.